I'm delighted to welcome Singapore's senior minister, Tharman Shangbungaratnam, who has, is now the coordinating minister for social policies, but has been many things, and really one of the architects of the extraordinary uh, transformations that Singapore has brought about and the amount of thinking that the Singapore government has devoted to how to get government work well and how to get a country to prosper. You've spent your lot of working life in public service, um, roles, I think it's fair to say, principally related to economic and social policies. You've been Deputy Prime Minister for eight years and uh, Minister for Finance, Minister for Education, and also led the International Monetary and Financial Committee, the key policy forum of the IMF for three years as its first Asian chair. We're delighted to have you here, delighted to know that you're going to be, uh, I think it's tomorrow, confer the Freedom of the City of London as part of the, um, uh, an award in, in uh, honor of uh, Singapore's uh, close relations with the City of London. And delighted to have you here um, to give your thoughts on modern government and the challenges facing it. So a very, very warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Bonwin. Uh, thank you for this um, opportunity, this uh, privilege of addressing you. Um, I should say immediately that I'm not going to be talking principally about the United Kingdom, obviously, and I hope I'm not a um, rude intrusion in present debates, but uh, I'll be talking quite frankly uh, about the problems that um, a whole range of societies face, particularly the most advanced societies, including the United Kingdom, some of the lessons we're getting from around the world, uh, some of the lessons that we should get from around the world, and I say that from a country that's continually searching for lessons from around the world, and a new way forward that offers the prospect of rebuilding confidence in the center of the political spectrum, because it's only confidence in the center of the political spectrum that's going to get us out of present difficulties and give a sense of optimism uh, to the broad span of people in our societies. The basic problem we face, and it's interesting that you see this across a whole range of societies, is the loss of trust in both governments and markets, the loss of trust in the ability of governments and markets to deliver broad-based prosperity. There's a loss of trust in the system, giving people a fair chance in life, a fair crack at success. And there's also a loss of a sense of togetherness. And you see this across a whole range of societies. It's quite evident in the United States. It's evident in Europe, the main continental European countries, France, increasingly Germany. You see it in the United Kingdom. You even see beginnings of this in the Nordic societies which used to be a lot more cohesive uh, than most and are still quite distinct from most. So that loss of trust in government, loss of faith in markets, and a loss of a sense of togetherness. There's good data behind this. Some of it is soft data from surveys. Some of it is the hard data of what underpins people's perceptions and realities. If you look at the surveys, if you look at Pew Research, if you look at um, the Edelman Trust Barometer, these are the two major international surveys of trust. 
uh, the picture is, is bleak. Uh, across the advanced world, uh, less than 50% of people uh, have trust in governments to do even some of the right things for their countries. Uh, it's about 45% on average. 45% of people believe that the trust government to do some of the right things. And barely 15% of people trust government to do most of the right things. And it's a picture that's roughly even across the advanced societies. Uh, I think a little better in Japan, a little better in Sweden, but it's, it's uh, really not a pretty picture. Importantly, this is not a recent phenomenon. It's not just Brexit, it's not just the latest government or administration in any particular country. Uh, it's been that way for a while. It's certainly been that way for the whole of the last decade. It's been that way for a while. And we haven't focused enough on this ebbing of trust and confidence on the part of our populations. The loss of a sense of togetherness is now very apparent because we see it in electoral politics, whether it's a referenda or, or general elections, that geography of voting is now very stark. The difference in voting patterns between the leading cities, the ordinary towns, and the rural areas is stark. And when you look past the averages, particularly the averages in a first-past-the-post system, and if you look at divergences in voting preferences across a whole range of countries, that divergence, depending on whether you're in a leading, thriving city, or a lagging town, or rural area, is now a new reality. And it is not going away soon. You see it in France, you see it in the UK, you see it in, uh, you certainly see it in the United States. You see it in Turkey. It's a phenomenon that we have to now focus on. Look past the averages, look past the ag <coughs> aggregates, and look at the composition of votes and figure out what's behind it. Because people don't vote in an entirely fickle way. They do vote on the basis of a different, experienced reality. And we have to try and understand those differences in experienced realities. Those are perception surveys, but they are rooted in an economic reality. The reality is we have had significant divergence in experiences across the populations of most advanced societies. Wage stagnation has been a fact in most of the advanced societies for a long period of time. In the United States for a few decades, in the UK for quite some time. It has been a, a very marked phenomenon of the last few decades. And I'll come back in a sentence or two to the issue of whether it's caused by globalization or technology, because at the core, it's not about globalization, it's not about technology, it's about our responses to globalization and technology. It's about policy responsiveness, it's about political responsibility, that's at the core of it. But whatever the case, we now have the legacy of a long period of wage stagnation and uneven distribution of incomes and wealth across a whole range of countries. And people have also lost faith in social mobility. In other words, quite apart from 
wages today compared to wages yesterday, do I have a chance of escaping my background? If I'm born with a disadvantage, do I have a chance of escaping that background? If someone else is born with advantage, does he or she preserve it for the rest of their lives? And the sense that social mobility is now a feature of the social and political makeup of the advanced world is a feature of meritocracy and a feature of markets. That sense is no longer there. The faith in markets, meritocracy, and governments to be able to spur social mobility in each generation is no longer there. And the surveys are very clear. In the United Kingdom as well, your latest social mobility barometer shows that younger people especially, not just the very young, but even people in their 30s and 40s, have very little faith in people being able to end up in a position not determined by their backgrounds. Even compared to previous generations, because this is something that's in people's minds as well, they're concerned about mobility within their own generation, in other words, relative social mobility, but they're also concerned about absolute mobility compared to their parents' generation. And even there, the reality is um, half of all Americans uh, who were born in the 80s um, have a lower income uh, compared to their parents at the age of 30. And even if you could just compare those born in the 80s to those born in the 60s, you see a marked difference. There is a slowdown in lifetime incomes for the more recent generations. And that's a profound phenomenon because the whole experience of capitalism and markets was that each generation tended to do better than the past. And parents expected their children to do better than them, unless they started off very rich. But for most ordinary people, most middle class people, those in those even with low incomes, you expect your children to do better than you. And that was basic to your faith in the system. And that's no longer the case for a large proportion of people. We can only address this if we focus not just on the relativities, which are important, but on having everyone also move upward. Absolute mobility matters. Absolute growth of income matters if we are to address the relativities and the inequalities. It is much harder to address inequality or to spur social mobility if the escalator is stationary. Because you're then extremely anxious on a stationary escalator about someone catching up from behind you or someone in front moving further up and further away from you. We need a moving escalator where everyone is moving up because that's the best way you can get the fluidity in society as well. That's the best way you accept that, well, some people are going to move ahead, some people are going to move down, but we're all moving up. It relieves a great deal of the anxiety of the broad middle. And one of the unfortunate facts of, of society is that people are not just concerned about those who are moving further away from them at the top. They're also concerned about people behind them catching up with them. The very good surveys in the United States, for instance, about why the white poor and the white lower middle class is a lot less, a lot more pessimistic than the black poor and the black lower middle class. And that sense that previous privileges are being eroded and someone else is catching up is a reality in society. 
And we can only tackle that if you have a moving escalator where everyone is moving up. And we have to bear that in mind in our basic design of economic and social policies. Be concerned about inequality, be concerned about social mobility, but the best way to tackle it is by at the same time having absolute growth of incomes and an absolute mobility that takes all people up towards something that they want to achieve better in life. The current situation is, I think, and I don't think I speak in too dramatic a way to say I don't think this is sustainable socially or politically. It's the loss of trust, the loss of confidence, the sense of a lack of togetherness or solidarity is going to seriously undermine the quality of our democracies. We're seeing it already, but I don't think this is a passing phenomenon. It is undermining the quality of democracies in a way that will be unpredictable, but is very likely to end in a bad place. So we have to do something. And it requires a fresh and bold ambition at the center of politics, a fresh and bold ambition for the state that involves growing opportunities, but also investing in the social foundations of economic prosperity. Invest in the social foundations of economic prosperity, because that's how you don't just grow opportunities and grow an economy, but you spread opportunities and give everyone a fair chance of taking those opportunities and achieving a decent and dignified life. And it involves a few basic orientations, I would say. And I'd say orientations rather than specific policies. And I'll come to some policies in a short while. First orientation I would emphasize is the importance of investing upstream, intervening upstream. Because all the major issues that are holding people back and, lead, and leading to an uneven spread of opportunities and outcomes start early. Education, well, it starts with the maternal health and the earliest years in life. What happens in school? Healthcare. If you're a child that's obese at the age of seven, you're more or less obese for life, with a whole multitude of health problems that arise from that. Neighborhoods. If you don't intervene early to have people living in the same neighborhoods in some integrated fashion, if you don't intervene early to fix the broken window, things get very difficult over time. Dealing with already segregated communities is far tougher than intervening upstream to get people to interact with each other and grow up together. So you can't leave that to the markets because the markets, that's not what the markets do. The natural workings of society don't lead to people integrating with each other. They don't lead to the early disadvantages and advantages of life, depending on who you're born to, disappearing. They, in fact, multiply the advantages and disadvantages of life. That's the natural workings of society. And it happens in a whole range of ways. Assortative mating, parents from better off families or better educated spending a lot more time with the kids, hiring practices that are biased 
in favor of those who already have it. There's a whole way in which the natural workings of society tend to replicate and in fact accentuate the starting advantages and disadvantages that people have in life. So you can't leave it to the market. You've got to intervene and you've got to intervene early, upstream. And one of the most facile objections to that is that, well, that's social engineering. And it's facile because actually the market does the social engineering and the role of the state, the role of collective action and community is to mitigate and redress the social engineering of the market. So don't shrink from early interventions. They are more effective. They're better value for money as well, if you're thinking as a finance minister. But most importantly, they give us a better chance of solving the big problems of the day. Don't expect the natural workings of the market to lead to anything better than what we've seen before, what we've seen to date. Thirdly, or secondly, I would say, we've got to pay a lot more attention in fiscal policy to public goods and the long term. There has been a drift in fiscal policy in a whole range of countries towards individuals rather than public goods and towards the short term or the next electoral cycle rather than the long term. If you look at some good studies of the US budget, for instance, in the 60s, 75% of the US budget went into public goods of one form or another, infrastructure, schools, hospitals, transport, and so on. And 25% went in some form of benefits to individuals. Today, it's exactly the other way around. 75% individuals and 25% on public goods. That is inherently short-term. It solves immediate problems sometimes, but it doesn't lead to a better long-term future. And it doesn't lead to optimism. If you don't invest in public goods and people see that you're investing for the long term, it's very hard to get a more optimistic society. You get a society where people are constantly concerned about how much do I get compared to someone else. So that's a second important orientation we need in government, the importance of public goods and the long term. Third, I think we also need a new narrative, if I use that for want of a better word, <clears throat> a new narrative that goes beyond the traditional tired narratives of both the right and the left. And that must involve a role for collective responsibility and a role for personal and family responsibility. And we shouldn't see those as alternatives or some sort of binary option. There's a very important way in which collective action can strengthen personal and family responsibility and help people earn their own success, starting in education, holding a job, improving on the job, owning a home, raising a family, feeling responsible and feeling that they are contributing to society. There's a way in which collective action strengthens personal and family responsibility. And for too long, I think, attitudes on the right have focused on personal responsibility. And there's something to it, the values of personal responsibility, but it can't explain why we've had wage stagnation for decades can't explain why we've had a remarkable stagnation in social mobility 
can't explain the wide regional and urban divergences we've seen. We haven't had a sudden explosion of personal irresponsibility to explain all this, but it's happened. We need collective action. We need collective action too, both top-down and ground-up, because that's what leads to a redressing of these basic trends that we are seeing before us. But it can't be just collective action in the form of redistribution. If that was so, I think the left would have done far better after the global financial crisis than it's done. After all, you had an increase in inequality, you had a, some very inequitable outcomes. But the appeal of redistribution has, I think, run its course. You do need redistribution, of course. You need progressive tax policies and you need a fair way of distributing benefits. But it's how you go about allocating benefits that is critical. And we've got to move away from thinking about redistribution towards thinking about regeneration, social mobility and regeneration, because that's about growth. It's about opportunity, it's about potential, and growing potential through life. And that's a basic reorientation that has to take place within social democracy. Don't leave it to the market, but don't think it's simply a matter that can be solved by redistribution. It can't, and people don't believe it. And finally, and I know this appeals a lot to the work you're doing in the Institute for Government, we've got to combine moral purpose, that relentless desire to root out unfairness and to give everyone a fair chance, combine that moral purpose with a search for practical solutions. Constant experimentation, constant learning from the evidence, both in our own countries and abroad. Combine moral purpose and practicality. That's what's sustainable. And that's what will allow us to find policy options that are expressions of this desire on our part for fairer societies. And finding those policy options is not such an easy matter. It requires experimentation. It requires correcting the cause. It requires a continuous search for efficiency. And it requires listening to people all the time to find out what they feel about policies. I'm going to go very briefly now through a few policy spaces that express this attitude, this orientation that I feel has to be given energy at the center of politics. The first and the most important is growing opportunities through life. I've spoken about the criticality of intervening early. It's now a truism. The first few years, years of life are critical, in fact, the prenatal period is critical, followed by the first few years of life. And we've got to find new ways of going about it. It's not about sending infants into school, although infant care is important in a local neighborhood. It requires a new modern village to raise a child with professionals, psychologists, carers, coaches, parents, and volunteers. And we've got to try different ways. We're trying several ways in Singapore. I know you're trying some ways in Sure Start in, in the UK, but it's critical that we intervene early. Schools, unfortunately not the greatest strength of, um, the public school system is not your greatest strength. It's an abysmal failure in the United States, and it's a failure across a large part of continental Europe as well. If you look at the PISA results that are 
well-known, well-publicized, PSAR, the equivalent international surveys like TIMS, you notice that all the top, the countries at the top, both for top average performance, but also top peak performance, are countries with public education systems as not only either the vast, the large anchor in the system or universally public. Singapore is public, Finland is public, most of the East Asian countries are public. They're public school systems. And it's when your social elite goes to public school systems and when you have systems of admission into public school systems that people feel are fair and when you distribute a high-quality teaching workforce across the school system, that you get those high averages, and you also get high peaks. But it's just such a startling exhibit that if you look at the countries at the top of the PISA tables, they're countries not driven by private and public systems together with private outperforming public, they're public school systems. And that's the first primary lesson don't lose faith in the ability of public school systems to provide for social mobility, but also excellence. And it requires thinking hard about how we run those systems. How, first and foremost, you recruit and reward teachers, including developing teachers through their careers, including even giving them sabbaticals, as we do in Singapore. It involves thinking hard about a more awkward issue, which is that mix of differentiation and fluidity that you need in the system. If you go for a completely French-like system, completely egalitarian, everyone studies the same thing and moves up at the same pace, you get very inegalitarian outcomes. Every year in France, 20% of kids who come from weaker income backgrounds drop out of high school without a qualification. Very inegalitarian outcome. You need to differentiate education to different people's strengths, different learning styles, but don't trap people in one path for all time. It requires flexibility, it requires fluidity. And this is a very important tension that we can't shrink away from. You must have differentiation to be fair to people, but you must have that flexibility and fluidity so that no one is trapped in any particular path. And as we move beyond the school system, there's also a very tough question to address about what happens in the college years. Sir David mentioned yesterday in your dinner speech the um, tragedy of technical education. I think you used a slightly harsher word, but let's just say tragedy. Um, that's now a truism. The best future in working life, shaped by what you do before you enter working life, is to give you an education that's suited to your strengths and suited to the needs of the market. And there's a whole range of countries that have unfortunately neglected technical education, including the United Kingdom, and you're trying to recover that, including the United States, and they are trying to recover that, to redress that. And there's some lessons we could learn from. We've learned lessons from the rest of the world when we fortified and built up our technical education system, which is, I would say, a jewel in our system. But it's not just about technical education or further education, as I think you call it. It's also about those who go through what we call universities. We have moved into an over-academized over model. 
That's the English language for you, by the way. <laughs> we moved into an over-academicized model of university education, very different from what it used to be, when a much smaller proportion of age cohort went to university, but we just scaled it up. And now as 40, 50% of kids go through university, it's that same model. And it doesn't meet the needs of the market. It leads people spending family resources, it needs state resources, going into something that's really not providing value for money. And I think we are a little elitist sometimes in thinking that the applied model of education doesn't give you the soft skills and the creative skills and all those good things that we all need in our lives, especially in a life of continuous cycles of change. There's no particular reason to assume that an applied education where you do part of your university education at work and internships, and you have that blend of academic and applied study, no reason to assume that that doesn't produce soft skills. Thinking on the job, problem solving, working in a team, understanding cross-cultural differences, no reason to at all. And if we just think honestly about all our own experiences in university, it's not as if it was a very rich dose of critical thinking most of the time, unless you are inebriated. But, you know, it's, the reality is that we've got to go for a different balance, and a different balance that's fairer to individual strengths and a balance that meets the needs of the market. Very important, lifelong learning. We have front-loaded a lot of education, and we need to stretch it out through life, through regular, regular injects through a working person's career. And there are different models we have to think hard about, building on our own social norms, including norms in the corporate sector, and what will work. I wouldn't assume that the only model should be training that's linked to a particular employer, although relevance to the employment market is critical. There is a difference, for instance, between the Danish model and the German model. The German model is a lot more firm-centric. The Danish model is a lot more public institution-centric where employers send their workers to public institutions for training that's of more general relevance to the industry. There is a difference in incentives between the firm and the individual. The firm wants their workers to be particularly productive for that particular production process, the gadget they're making, the device they're making, or the service they're selling. The individual wants training and investment to enhance his or her career and their future prospects, not just in that particular firm. And we've got to find the right balance, therefore, between firm-specific training and training that's relevant to a whole industry and training that's relevant to other industries as well. And that balance is something that requires some thought. But it requires a whole infrastructure. It requires public funding. It requires incentives. And in Singapore, we've embarked about, upon this in a very systematic way through what we call skills future, including an individualized uh, account for everyone. The Canadians have just um, followed. In fact, they took reference from some other models, including our own. But it's an extremely important new space for public policy, investing in people through their lives in a way that gives them relevance in a changing market, but also allows them to grow their potential through life, because that, too, is a source of social mobility. Next, and I, uh, I'm going to be much briefer in the no, remaining you, three. You, you you're, the you're the next challenge fine. is that of 
shaping inclusive neighborhoods and addressing regional disparities. Inclusive neighborhoods are, to be quite frank, the secret source of Singapore's social and economic model. And I've explained why it's critical to think about this afresh, about what we do upstream, rather than wait for the broken windows to multiply or wait for the neighbourhood to be defined as <coughs> underprivileged, wait for ghettos to be formed, and wait for segregation to be not just a physical reality, but part of people's minds. You have to intervene upstream, which is what we did in Singapore. And we did it through public, publicly developed housing estates. More than 80% of Singapore lives in publicly developed housing estates, but owned privately. In other words, you buy your own apartment for a 99-year lease. As a result of it being publicly developed, there are no gates and fences. So most of Singapore, vast majority, live in public neighborhoods with no gates or fences. It's shared property. Everything, the parks, the children's playgrounds, the eating facilities, the transport, Everything is public. And what we did was to design the neighborhoods to integrate people across socioeconomic class, from the poorest to the upper middle class, because 85% of the population is in public housing, but critically too, across ethnicity, having people of different ethnic backgrounds grow up together. And it requires some intrusive rules where the market and market pricing reflects the fact that every neighbourhood must have that mix. And if there are too many people of one particular ethnicity, the market has to adjust and we have to wait for others to bid for the flat in the open market. But without that intrusive policy, we would not achieve, have achieved the degree of social harmony that we have in Singapore today and avoided the very large problems that we see elsewhere. And I would say it is not more intrusive than some of the things that you're now having to do in other societies as a result of the gulf that we're seeing between people. So think hard about that. Robert Putnam, who's, who placed a lot of emphasis on social capital, well-known American sociologist, uh, in his more recent book, I think it was 2015, called Our Kids, which was really about how our kids had, became, had become us, uh, uh, us and them rather than our kids. The single most important explanation he had for what has happened is that kids are growing up separately in segregated neighborhoods and therefore schools where composition is also segregated. How you grow up either together or separately shapes so much of the way you view each other through life. It's critical. But there's another fascinating point about this. When you mix people up across socioeconomic group, ethnicity, and so on, you avoid any neighborhood being disadvantaged. You have disadvantaged people in Singapore. You have disadvantaged families in Singapore. We try our best to help them. But there's not a single disadvantaged neighborhood. And that had meant so many things, including the fact that home equity appreciation across Singapore is roughly equal. 
the poor who are getting heavily subsidized flats to own, smaller apartments which they own, have seen a rate of home equity appreciation equal to, in fact, a little more for some reason, but equal to, let's say, that of the larger apartments owned by the middle class and the upper middle class, and in fact, faster than even private property in Singapore. So mixed neighborhoods also produce that outcome of an equal appreciation of housing wealth across society. And you get that for free, not out of the budget. It didn't require continuous annual subventions out of the budget to give people a home equity uplift. It came out of urban design. <coughs> if you get urban design right, social urban design, it produces a social asset and an economic asset. And I'm talking here about the economic asset in the sense of equal home price appreciation. The other critical issue of managing place is that which the larger societies face. But there's something in which, there's some way in which we are learning lessons from cities around the world. We are a small society, geographically very small, just one city. But we've learned lots of lessons from other cities on the whole issue of how you can ensure continuous regeneration. And I think addressing the problems we've seen socially and politically, which I spoke briefly about earlier, requires an economic solution. It requires economic regeneration. And we've got to make the most of what the economists call, in a somewhat uh, fancy way, the economics of agglomeration, which is how when you get clusters of firms who are specialized in the same area or along the same supply chain, it becomes far more efficient. Customers go to them. You develop skills and capabilities together. And in productivity growth and wage growth tends to be faster. So the economics of clusters and agglomeration offer great potential. But by definition, it can't be every town, because you need some economies of scale and you need some specialization. So it can't be every town. But we must make sure that in every region, you've got that bright, dynamic cluster in every region. So that even if the young people that move there and their parents or grandparents are living somewhere else, they all feel they're part of that region and that region is still doing well because Leeds is doing well or Manchester is doing well. And you see this in some parts of the United States. The Rust Belt is not a completely barren economic landscape. There's some parts of the Rust Belt that are doing extremely well. You see it fascinatingly, by the way, in Japan. Japan has avoided the extremes of populism. Its politics is quite different. And you notice that in Japan, that they have a deliberate strategy of making sure that every region in Japan, it's quite a large country, has a city that is given additional resources, that is specializing, and that is rising. Fukuoka in the southern island of Kyushu, thriving now as a new bed for startups. Okinawa, further south, somewhat neglected in the past now being developed for agriculture, including new modern agriculture and tourism. Kyoto doing extremely well. It's not just a center for tourism. It's a center for medical research and manufacturing, including medical devices, and so on. And what we always viewed as, as a bit of an oddity in Japan, even an inefficiency, that its political system uh, accorded uh, excessive weight to the areas outside Tokyo and to the rural areas, a bit of gerrymandering and so on. 
but excessive weight to the rural areas, has actually led to a continuous flow of resources throughout the country. So you don't, if you travel around Japan, you don't come across depressed towns and cities because everyone keeps receiving something, and there's something to think about there. How do we ensure, not through gerrymandering or uh, the wrong sort of politics, but how do we ensure that at the centre of politics, we are concerned about the regions and concerned about towns that have gone into depression and don't allow for some sort of social hysteresis to develop where the problems get knottier and more difficult to solve over time. It can be done. Japan is doing it. Spain is now trying to do it as well in Bilbao, in the Balaga Valley, in Andalusia, which was long neglected, in Galicia, which is the northwestern region. You've got sparks of new dynamism coming up. So that's a critical issue that we all have to think about in larger countries. Next, I'll come quickly, and I'll be briefer now, on the last two very important planks of public policy that express this new orientation of the centre. And the, the, the third issue I'll talk about is the whole issue of ageing with dignity and purpose. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a real opportunity for us. We all have ageing societies amongst the advanced countries, and I would say China uh, and a few other emerging countries are getting into that situation very soon as well. Just as we say it takes a modern village to raise a child, it takes a modern village to give dignity to every senior citizen. It's not just about state benefits, it's about how we organize healthcare, how we organize social care, how we develop an urbanism around the senior citizen so that they're up and about, they're active, and they're contributing to the community. It requires experimentation, which is actually what we're doing in Singapore. We have something like 70 initiatives underway now as part of this active aging movement that we're developing. But it, it's not gonna happen because the market makes it happen. It requires a lot of thought and is a very interesting space for ground up initiative supported by government or federal support. It's a very interesting space. There are interesting issues in healthcare about how you integrate healthcare so that you don't need to go to a hospital which tends to also lead to much higher costs. But you can be treated in the community, either at home or at a health facility near the home. How we develop the manpower for that, including the para-health uh, professionals, um, who can actually cater to lots of the needs of the elderly without being fully trained doctors or nurses. Critical issue. And that also, by the way, provides for good jobs for people that whole community care sector and quasi-healthcare sector provides for good jobs. But integrating healthcare systems is a critical fiscal issue to save costs, but very importantly, it's a critical issue in providing, allowing people to have dignity even <coughs> as they are ill and to be able to age in place and receive care near in the neighborhood. And technology, by the way, is a very interesting enabler in this regard. The technologies that are developing to, develop, to, to detect frailty at home or in the neighbourhood are fascinating. Or to monitor whether you've taken your pills as you gradually get more forgetful as you're older uh, are, are very interesting opportunities. Finally, what I would say is the elephant in the room or the mastodon in the room, the inequity we are placing on the next generation. Uh, it's not a good democracy if we just keep pushing the burden to the next generation. It's unfair, it's inequitable, it's irresponsible. 
And we really have to rethink healthcare and pension financing and to start being a lot more active at the core of government and society on climate change and global warming, which is already a crisis and getting larger. Pension financing uh, requires a rethink across the advanced world. We knew what was happening in the old defined benefit systems, how they became unsustainable because the promises were made which were not being accompanied by increased contributions, um, and we were just leaving it to the next generation to sort it out. So what countries, many countries did, especially when it came to corporate defined benefit schemes that were unsustainable, was to move to defined contribution, and it was left to the individual to manage their own money. That whole movement, most especially in the US, but also in Europe and the UK, it has not worked well. It hasn't worked well anywhere in the world to ask ordinary individuals to manage their own money. They have systematically underperformed the market, they've paid too high an amount of fees to intermediaries, and they're not well provided for in retirement. So we moved from a collective concept of defined benefit that had a lot of beauty in it, except that it was unsustainable because of specific policy actions, to an individualized concept of retirement planning and security that hasn't worked well. And we've got to bring the collective back into defined contribution systems, fully funded, but collectively invested and collectively managed, get rid of all these big fees, and don't place an unrealistic burden of responsibility on individuals to be able to manage and make the right decisions. Few individuals anywhere in the world can do that well. Healthcare financing, very sensitive issue. I know about the debates you're going through here, but, and I know about the, the tremendous uh, affection that people have for the NHS, which has really achieved a lot. And you see the same thing in, in Europe, uh, the benefits of a universal healthcare system. But there is no free lunch. There's no such thing as free healthcare. People are paying for it, either through taxes, which are getting higher in most of Europe to pay for healthcare, or through insurance premiums. So you either pay for it upfront, or you pay for it when you go for a health checkup or when you're getting some treatment. It's not free. There's no, no free healthcare. And we're learning some important lessons. One, in the US, for instance, because of the over-reliance on insurance, um, uh, costs keep going up because the individual doesn't even know the price of, uh, they, they don't know what they're being charged for because it's all paid for already. And there's no, there's tremendous moral hazard. There's no constraint on doctors, drug companies and intermediaries to keep costs down because the individual is not there as a check on the system. There's no out-of-pocket payment. Likewise, if everything is paid for in taxes beforehand, and it's all one big pool, and you don't know what it costs when you go to a hospital or a clinic, you get the same lack of a check on cost increases. And we have to be concerned about cost increases and value for money. The reality is, we either get people to save a lot more and pay a lot more taxes, or we address one of the fundamental tenets, which is everyone, regardless of poor or rich, getting the same benefits. In the UK, interestingly, and I was reading an interesting report by the Institute for Government, um, when it comes to social care, or what we call long-term care in some countries, the fact that towards the end of your life you need a lot more uh, care because you're physically infirm. Um, when it comes to social care, the UK accepts 
that there has to be means testing. In fact, most people insist on it being means tested privileges where the rich don't get the same benefits. But the same logic or thinking doesn't apply to the NHS. And I, all I'm saying is this, we have to make choices. Different societies will make different choices, but there is no free lunch. Either people pay more taxes over time as more people age and the burden of paying for overall health care costs goes up, or you change the, change the shape of the slope so that the, that the proportion of taxes and benefits that different people get varies more significantly. And we have to address that in the interest of equity and in the interest of not postponing the problem to the next generation because there are going to be fewer of them in the workforce compared to the number of pensioners and we shouldn't assume that they are all going to be doing very well in their jobs and wages are going to be rising the way it rose through the 60s and 70s. So it's a fundamental issue that we have to address. So I've spoken about four policy areas where I think there's this space for providing for growth and absolute mobility while tackling inequalities and tackling the divergences between different people and different regions. I spoke about it in context of growing opportunities through life and spreading them. I spoke about it in the context of addressing uh, the issue of integration of people in neighborhoods with some serious social and political priorities that have to be addressed and addressing the issue of declining regions. And I've addressed the issue of aging with dignity and purpose, which is, I think, a big opportunity for most of our societies. And finally, avoiding the pretense that we can postpone the problem to the next generation, which will be inequitable and irresponsible. And the politics of the center has to be square on these issues, has to be serious and square on these issues. And we've got to invest energy into this new spirit of collective responsibility to support personal responsibility. Thank you very much. Minister, thank you very much indeed. That was absolutely tremendous. So they sweep from trust to principles of what we might do and to generational uh, equality and through social mobility. Uh, Marvellous um, arc of things you've taken us through. Uh, I'm not making a political comment if I say that the debates for the Conservative Party leadership have not yet, it seemed to me, got to that kind of sweeping <laughs> vision of how our country might, might run itself. Let me ask you a few things before we go to questions, and I think there are going to be quite a few questions. Um, you touched in there, very interestingly, in, 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 in a marvellously delicate way, I thought you had, of presenting lessons from Singapore's success or offering them to other countries without quite prescribing them. But you mentioned in there, we've been discussing neighbourhoods uh, and, and, and so on. The, the question of, um, uh, of, of intrusion, as you put it, of, of the government's role in, uh, in really actively shaping things. And Obviously, in the, the, the debate in the UK, whether the UK might be a new Singapore when it leaves the EU and so on is, is one of those things that, that, that is recurrent. And then people move immediately to the question of whether the UK you know, is so different from Singapore, indeed, whether other countries are so different from uh, the very particular characteristics of Singapore that those lessons just don't 
cross borders. And I wondered if you could um, dwell a bit more on this, because if you, if you go back to what I was saying at the beginning about the UK, we've had, almost um, opposite uh, from, from uh, more hands-on state, we've had 20 years, as I was describing at the beginning, of more devolution, pushing powers down to local level, and obviously have a, a, a culture and legal and constitutional system here of a lot of freedom of property rights and indeed picking on one of your other themes, people to uh, educate their children as they like. Um, and it's a big complicated country spread out over, uh, over many different regions. How much do you think the kind of recipes that have worked so well for Singapore, with all the kind of thinking behind it that you brought that, how, how much could they actually be transported, say, to Britain? I would say, and I say this also as it is speaking um, uh, from a country that has borrowed lessons from abroad, mm. we very rarely can literally transplant them. But the ideas and the orientations are quite instructive to us. And in a whole range of areas, apart from uh, what I mentioned about integrating neighborhoods, where I think it was uh, much more of a Singapore innovation rather than something we borrowed from abroad, but in almost every other sphere, We've really borrowed and adapted lessons in a way that suited us. When I look at the big issues um, uh, we face today, inclu including in the United Kingdom, I think there are lessons um, everywhere uh, to be drawn, including within the UK itself. Uh, I, I find it fascinating how some of the places that were sort of written off in the UK 20 or 30 years ago are coming back to life. And it's typically some sort of local action that's taking place employers feeling responsible, not just to move around and find the most efficient location within or outside the UK, but feeling responsible to develop capabilities where they are. Um, if you look at um, the differences between the Northern Europeans and many other advanced societies, I think there's something to be learned. There's something about the German middle stand that's not just about short-term efficiency, but about staying with your people and developing the mostest in them. There's something about, it's a different shareholder model, it's a longer term orientation, it's somewhat more patient, uh, but there's something to be learned from it. Uh, there's something about the Swiss model where employers take as their responsibility first and foremost, without even thinking about the state, their responsibility to invest in training. Mm. And even if they lose a particular worker to another firm, they know that what goes around comes around and everyone gains. So there's something to that collective approach that's developed over time in different societies uh, that can be borrowed. So if there's something similar between the Sing Singapore and UK approach is that we are both rather open. Um, uh, to date, we've both been, uh, Singapore has no choice but to be open, but I'd say the UK is one of the more open of the advanced countries. It likes international trade, investment. Um, it, it likes being, uh, finding a way to compete in the world. Uh, where uh, we've been different is I think we've invested more significantly in what I call the social foundations of economic dynamism and we've gone for more upstream investments. So if you like, that's upstream an approach. Like education. Education, uh, early healthcare, um, uh, neighbourhoods, that's an early investment that's critical for society as a whole. I would say that's a public good. So uh, I wouldn't call them lessons because we didn't invent it in Singapore, it's just that we've done it and we've done it consistently and tried to improve it over time. Mm. But the, uh, the uh, 
tabloid rendition of Singapore as some sort of free market paradise. What do they call it? Singapore on the Thames, is it? Uh, it's just fanciful. We are a market economy, but with the government taking responsibility together with community to invest in the social foundations and not be embarrassed about it. Uh, responsibility and the power of the government to tell people, for example, you are going to live in mixed neighborhoods. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. is not an exact parallel here. No, it's better than yeah. having to arrest them en masse and imprison them further down the road. Um, the future, no doubt, awaits our currently divided country. Um, let me ask you some other things about uh, aging. And in fact, you and I first met at a discussion about uh, aging and lifelong skills in, in, in Downing Street. Um, you talked about aging with dignity. Does that also come down, given the fiscal pressures you were talking about, does that also come down to aging with work uh, 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 as much as yes. people so can? So you're quite right. And I, I should have emphasized that when I was speaking as well. <clears throat> we have to re-envision work. Uh, for the 21st century. We have to re-envision work for the next two decades. Um, retirement age is an obvious issue. We're all discussing it, and we've started a debate in Singapore on this. Uh, we have to move the retirement age. But it's more than just retirement age and legislated um, um, uh, 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 years. Uh, it's about changing workplace practices. And there's a lot to be done to redesign jobs and to redesign the work week uh, for people who are different physical abilities, different mental abilities, and different preferences. But the idea that people should stay active through their 60s and, if possible, in their 70s uh, will become a norm before long. And we've got to make it possible. So it's not just a, a drudgery, not just being forced to work because you need some additional income, but you feel you're contributing, and you feel you're still learning uh, and the Skills Future program that I spoke about, we deliberately didn't limit it to just working adults. So uh, it's, we it's extended available it through to life. people it's everyone. Right, That's up, right. right up to the and end And even if they're learning it yeah. late in life because they're trying to develop an interest, I think there's some positive coming out of that. Mm -hmm. For people to stay active, it helps their health, uh, and it creates a better local community as well. Mm. You slid, uh, it's sort of the same theme. You slid in right at the end of your talk, uh, the notion uh, born of arithmetic projections, uh, of means testing the NHS. More provocative, I'd put to you, than anything Donald Trump said in his visit. Is that something you think the UK should think about? So I, I'm, I, <clears throat> I did add very carefully that each society has to make its own choices, but I, all I'm saying is there is no free lunch. There's, there's no such thing as a free NHS. People are paying for it. There's no such thing as a free French healthcare system. People are paying astronomically for it, by the way with very high VAT and income taxes, and also there they've got a payroll tax that's dedicated to healthcare. People are paying for it. So the question is, is it being paid for equitably? That's the question. Who's paying and who's benefiting? And just as you've addressed, I think, very forthrightly in the UK for social care, the need for means testing, so that with limited resources, the benefits go to those who need it the most. Um, there are some issues that have to be addressed for NHS, and it may well be that in the UK you might decide to stick with universal benefits, if that's the political choice, and if that's what people want, but accept that it comes with a cost. And you can't pass that cost on to the next generation. Mm. You just have to be square about things. If you ask me, um, you know, when Anurin Bevin 
um, embarked on the NHS following Beveridge's recommendations and went for universal health care with everyone getting benefits. First, there was a context, the war. There was also a belief that with universal health care, society would get healthier and um, health care costs would go down over time because people would just live healthier lives. It just turned out to be wrong. It just turned out to be wrong. And the demographics was not built into most conceptions of the welfare state either. The demographics of the fact that there's a bulge of people that's going to enter their retirement years and their older years, and there are going to be few, fewer people in the workforce. So I think long-term thinking has to be part and parcel of the thinking of the center of politics, mm. where you think not just for this electoral cycle or even this generation, but you think about equity across generations. And whether it's the NHS or any other issue, you will have to, you know, there'll have to be a social choice. And I'm not at all suggest, you know, it's far too simplistic for me to suggest changing it in the NHS, but what I can suggest is that there's no free lunch, mm. and you've got to be square about it with people. Who's getting the benefits and who's paying for it? Mm. Finally, I must ask you, because it's, it's uh, breaking news and uh, Singapore, UK news is not often, um, you know, not often come on right to the top of um, the news feed, but uh, the, the Scott Whiteman, who's the uh, High Commissioner, the UK High Commissioner in Singapore, just leaving, uh, has um, uh, made remarks picked up by Politico uh, saying that Singaporean ministers are mystified as to how our political leaders have allowed things to get to this pass. <laughs> I wondered if you thought that was um, an accurate picture. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately, I haven't read the report. Um, but I, uh, I would say, uh, and I'm speaking here not to lend support or credence to the report, it's some sort of leak, I suppose, um, but uh, the British friends I have uh, are worried about the future. Um, but there's also a sense that one way or another, Britain will eventually coalesce around uh, a future that is going to allow it to thrive once again. Uh, I think it'll take some time to go through this transition, though, whichever transition it is. Um, and the key priority, if you ask me, is uh, not merely economic. The key priority is political. Mm. It's about bridging the divisions that have been created. Um, and I think you're able to, with the right leadership and the right orientation at the center of politics. Uh, the British people haven't completely lost that sense of pragmatism and doability of things, in my opinion. Uh, so I'm not a pessimist for the long term, but there's going to be a very tough journey. Uh, I'm offering that as an opinion. And I'm going to borrow uh, two or three minutes from the coffee break, and let me just take two questions quickly. All right, there's one right at the back, quickest one. Thank you. Um, Chris Simmons from the University of Nottingham Institute for Policy and Engagement. Um, I just want to um, go back to the start of your presentation where um, essentially uh, you said that the current situation isn't sustainable socially or economically, which I agree with, um, but your solutions seem to be largely predicated on the idea of absolute increase, absolute growth across the board, and to, to use your metaphor the, the, with the moving escalator that everyone needs to be on. And then at the very end, you mentioned climate change. Um, and I guess I'm not the only person that's sceptical 
as to whether um, in a world of finite resources it's actually possible to tackle climate change without addressing current levels of, of consumption. So I guess my question for you is, do you think it is possible for everyone to be on that moving escalator that doesn't get off on a floor marked climate chaos? Um, and if not, how does that, what does that imply for your analysis? Thank you very much indeed, Chris. So first, uh, just to um, express myself more clearly, um, uh, just absolute mobility and a moving escalator alone is not good enough. But that's the way in which we're going to have the most resources and the most optimism in society to address the relativities as well. Inequality is important. Social mo mobility is fundamental. And if you think about those four uh, pillars of policy I was talking about, a lot of them are basically about giving everyone a fair chance in life regardless of where they start from. And neighbourhoods do matter. Uh, and all the studies show that neighbourhoods matter greatly in social mobility. Uh, education matters for very obvious reasons. So giving people a fair a chance for a dignified and decent life and allowing them to contribute uh, doesn't come easily if society is static and if the economy is not growing at all. Uh, because then you're just having to take an opportunity away from someone else. So it's critical to maintain the overall dynamism of society just as we address relativities and divergences. Uh, and there is a whole set of policy options that allow us to do those two things together. Climate change is critical. And I would say climate change has to be tackled internationally and you need cooperative internationalism. But it's very hard to arrive at that cooperative internationalism if we do not at the same time sort out domestic problems. That loss of confidence domestically and the loss of trust in government, if you don't have that domestically, it's, it's very hard to expect international action to get much further than where we are today. And we are, we are in a real crisis as a result. So I would say there has to be urgency and boldness in tackling the domestic issues that are before us, um, not just for each country's own sake, but for the world's sake. Thank you. One mm -hmm. question here. David, a lot of apologies to the other hands. Um, uh, yes, David, can you wait for the microphone, please? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think your speech was probably the most thoughtful and interesting speech I've heard, certainly in the Institute and in British politics for a long time. Assuming that reflects the kind of policy debates you're having um, in Singapore, um, what, what are the, how do you get that kind of uh, debate which is based on evidence, thought, uh, looking at other countries, Game because we need to begin to have that kind of policy debate, and I don't know how one actually starts it. So I'm not a, in a position to um, advise on that, but what I would say is that um, uh, we have two advantages in Singapore. First, very early on, uh, uh, we recognised that we had few choices in life. Um, we were vulnerable. We had no choice but to look outward and get the best lessons. Um, and we had to do things boldly and not wait to see how things turn out, how history turns, turns out. So that lack of options um, uh, was an advantage. Yeah. Uh, what seemed to be a disadvantage was really an advantage in terms of an orientation in government and society. Second, I think the uh, founding set of leaders, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew and his colleagues, Dr. Gokeng Sui and some others, instantly a few of them studied in Britain, 
um, uh, from the very start, had that long-term orientation uh, and an orientation that was both uh, fiscally prudent, in other words, don't pile up debts for the next generation, but settle things now, uh, but also created a political culture where you told people quite squarely what was what. And over time, I think the body politic itself uh, started thinking that way. We are not immune to populism, uh, and it could easily happen in Singapore. But there has been, there's a certain, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, there's a certain immunity that's built into the body politic. Uh, a certain suspicion uh, that people, ordinary people, will cast on anyone who promises something that sounds too good to be true. It may not last, but I think it's a real asset to have just developed that in the body politic. So we're not unique people. Uh, we're, we're the same people as everywhere else, but we've got that asset of people being suspicious of easy promises. And it helps a party that's a broad tent uh, to keep talking about the long term, keep talking about the trade-offs and the social choices we have to make. So, well, yeah. yeah. On that, we're sadly going to have to stop. We clearly could go on for a long time. It's been an incredibly stimulating talk and uh, brief discussion that's followed. Thank you for the questions, and can you join me in thanking Tom and Shan? <laughs>